Hello everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma broadcast. So um, next week I'm going to be giving a couple of talks to a Thai university, which is an honor. Appreciate that they've asked me to do it. So I thought I'd do some prep work talking about some of the things I'll be talking about there. Actually, I won't go through it all. That's going to be a lot more than I'll go through today. But what I'm going to start talking to them about, I think, is mindfulness. So today I'll go over mindfulness. This probably sounds like something that you've heard me talk about many times, right? Most of my talks are somehow about mindfulness. But um, I haven't talked in quite a while about the, the precise explanation of what mindfulness is, <clears throat> though I do often go over it in brief. So as many of you have, I'm sure, heard me say, in brief, the definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness comes from the, the Pali word sati. Sati means the ability to remember, or it means remembrance. And as I've said many times, it It's important to understand why, in order to understand the meaning of sati, you have to understand why it, it's used at all. Why would a word that means remembrance be used to describe what it means to be, well, mindful? you understand why mindfulness isn't exactly a literal translation of the word. You can see in colloquial language, worldly topics, the word sati is used to describe having a good memory, remembering things that happened a long time ago. Someone can remember things that happened a long time ago. They're said to have sati. So why does that have anything to do with meditation at all? Unless you're trying to remember your past lives, which actually is a, an example of the use of this word. Pubeiniwasanusati. Pubeiniwasa means past lives. Anusati. Sati. Anu means following or relating to, I guess. Mindfulness relating to past lives. So, of course, it's not mindfulness here. It's, it's sati, which memory of past lives. Recollection. So if someone has good recollection, that's what sati is. And, and 
There you start to get a sense of how it's used colloquially, how it's used to describe meditation, recollectedness, self-recollection, self-awareness is the jump, you know, you'd say what they're really talking about is something like self-awareness. And it, it provides some insight into why one might why why a mantra might be a useful tool because of course a mantra is is very much involved with the proper identification of a thing of an object and so to have a clear recollection of the object or a clear awareness of the object it helps to start with the act the act of focusing bringing the object into focus creating clarity in the mind about the object affirming in the mind this is this this is what it is so the mantra does that that's why in so many different types of meditation not just mindfulness meditation a mantra is useful But if we want to go deeper to understand what we mean by sati in a meditative context, we get some really good information from the Visuddhimagga, from the commentaries, where they they don't just define the word, and and this is the case with many of these type these mental qualities. Or realities in general rather than define them they provide uh, descriptions of aspects of them four aspects it's called the lakanadi chatuka the fourfold explanation starting with the lakana lakana means characteristic and the four are lakana the characteristic of something rasa the function of something, pachupartana, the manifestation of something, how it manifests itself, and padartana, the proximate cause. These four together are what are used in, in the commentaries to describe all of the many various realities. Understand what is the characteristic of something, what is its function, what does it do, what, what is the result kind of thing. 
manifestation, how does it manifest itself, what is it like, and what is the proximate cause. So with mindfulness, the proximate, uh, sorry, the characteristic, the characteristic of mindfulness is apilapana. Pilap. Apilapana. Pilapana means to waver or to wobble. And the commentary uses an example of a pumpkin. You have a pumpkin floating on on the water. And it's gonna wobble all over the place. If the mind is unmindful, It flits here and it flits there. So mindfulness has this quality of strength and and the uncertainty. The real quality is of, of a, a certainty in the mind, a clarity in the mind, <clears throat> and and a accuracy in the mind. So wobbling in the mind is is related to our our responses to experience. How when we experience something, we make something more of it. We make many things more of it. When you experience pain and you make it into something bad, when you experience pleasure, you make it into something good. When you experience a sound or a sight and you make it into a person, a place, a thing, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. This is the wavering, the wobbling, the flitting. And so our experience of any one thing is very fleet, fleeting as we jump from one object to another, and mindfulness changes that. Mindfulness grasps the object. So when you're able to experience, for example, the stomach rising, when you say to yourself, rising, it helps. It helps to evoke this state of experiencing the mind, the, the rising, without any kind of reaction, you see, without any kind of extrapolation, without any flitting here or there. Rising is just rising. The function of sati, the rasa is asamosa. Asamosa means not forgetting. That's the purpose of this. Why is it important to not wobble so that you don't get lost, so that you don't forget? And so, of course, this, this applies to ordinary usage of the word sati as well, the ability to remember everything. Well, the purpose of that is to not forget it. And so the ability to remember the present moment and so that you don't lose track of the present moment and get lost in the past and the future and your, your reactions, your opinions of things. 
your biases and partialities. When seeing is just seeing, and you don't forget that in favor of whatever. The, the manifestation, there's two manifestations, and this is common for them to give different answers, multiple answers, based on, on often how the Dhamma is talked about by the Buddha, but also based on, on it having multiple qualities. So the, the manifestation of sati is either araka, which means guarding, or visaya bhimukabhava, which means um, abhimukha means placing in front, confronting perhaps, confronting an object. Confronting experience. And these are two very different manifestations, so it has, I mean, it has multiple uses, but let's say these are the two ways that it manifests, two of the ways that it manifests. So in guarding, you'll know you're mindful when these, when these things manifest, right? This is how you know that it's there. The guarding means the guarding from reaction. There, there's no room for defilements. There's no room for delusion even. No room for ignorance when you have mindfulness. So when your mind is, is pure, when you have this clear moment, and it's only a moment, this mindfulness only lasts a moment, And you're able to string these moments together and you realize, you're, you feel like your mind is more clearly seeing things as they are. This is araka. And your mind will feel cleaner as you practice mindfulness. And it's, it's, it helps you also to see the, the, the difference. You'll see that when you're not mindful as you practice and the moments when you're not mindful and your mind falls back into hindrances and emotions, reactions, how unpleasant it appears. You'll know when mindfulness is manifest and when it's not manifest. And with confronting, this is the other side of, of guarding, really, because the confronting the object keeps the mind fixed on the object. And confronting, it, this is a really important statement because it describes meditation, mindfulness meditation practice in general. Why we do it, what's different about it, and how it will manifest itself. Because our ordinary way of dealing with things is fight or flight, right? People tell you about fight or flight. We have these two reactions. No, well, actually there's a third option. Fight means to react in some way to change this is the object, and flight means act in some, react in some way to change the object. And it's not just fight or flight, because fight means mess with, 
And so if it's a positive experience, we still have something similar to fight. We fight for the object, fight to keep the object, work to keep it, work to increase it, work to in enhance it, or, or merely reaffirm how much we like it. But we're constantly avoiding bad situations and trying to manipulate our situations so that we can change our experience for the better, removing bad, rem gaining good. Mindfulness is the third option of confronting the actual experience that we have rather than trying to change it or enhance it or anything. We confront. What good, what good is it to focus on pain? What good is it to focus on anger or greed or so on? When you confront it, you change your relationship with it. You change that habit of reacting. Facing is like having a stare down, you know? You wait until the defilements blink. And more technically, you, you replace the habit of reacting with a habit of acknowledging, of experiencing, recognizing. And the proximate cause, well, there are two proximate causes. The first one's more, I think, a little more meaningful. The proximate cause of, of mindfulness is tira sanya. And if you haven't heard me talk about this, it's quite likely that you've never heard this, because I've never heard anyone else talk about this. But it's really important. I stress it, because I think more people should talk about it. Tira Sanya. Sanya means... Sanya actually, in, in some sense, means the same thing as Sati, but it's not used in the same way. Sanya means to recognize something. Uh, it's actually used in many different ways, but it's kind of the uh, cognition. And it's often used to describe the recognition, the remembrance. When you recognize that something is like something else, when you see a person a second time and you remember, oh, I've seen this person before. The ability to do that is, is sanya. So what does it mean, tira sanya? Tira means strong or firm. And this refers to the actual act of affirming your recognition of something, right? This is why, this is a really important piece of the understanding of why a mantra is so useful and so powerful. Because we recognize things. Everything that, ar that arises has some sort of recognition, even if we recognize that we don't recognize it. how we process something. We process everything. And and that processing, what is this? When we reaffirm that, when we strengthen it, that gives rise to what the Buddha called sati. 
let's be clear that it's not just any old sati. Sati is used again in, in very worldly sense. It's just a word, it's just an idea, it's a concept. But this state of actually confronting the object, of guarding the mind against reaction, of not wobbling, not wavering, that comes about through strengthening, confirming, affirming, sorry, reaffirming. the idea of the object so when when something impresses on your mind some idea you reaffirm that with the mantra when 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 you see something and you become cognizant through sanya that this is seeing when you affirm that by saying seeing that strengthens it rather than being weakened by the multiplicity of, of interpretations, right? This is seeing, oh yeah, this is this person I see, oh, this person did this to me, and that was a good thing, or that was a bad thing, and so on. Rather than all of that, you reaffirm the, you, you create a strong, and, and by extension, a pure, a simple, a, a basic, fundament foundational awareness of the object so tira sanya this is the proximate cause because as you repeat excuse me as you repeat to yourself pain pain or if you are happy or seeing it strengthens your perception of the object it strengthens that awareness and it creates this confronting confrontational mind that faces it doesn't avoid it doesn't react to it just stands its ground and the other the other proximate cause which is really just technically because of course it's the proximate cause is the four foundations of mindfulness which really doesn't say anything except remind us that Four foundations of mindfulness are the practice, the, the framework of practice. By establishing mindfulness based on the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness arises. So the practice, what it's saying is that the practice of what we call mindfulness, it's that practice that of course gives rise to mindfulness. Finally, the commentary gives two similes. It says, mindfulness should be regarded like a pillar. Because unlike a, a, a pumpkin floating on the, on the surface of the water, a pillar is something that is stuck and firm. When the mind is firm like that, firmly aware of the object even just for a moment it doesn't mean it's it's mo many many moments it doesn't mean this lasts a long time it means in that moment there's no uncertainty in the mind there's no diffuseness of mind the mind is fixed like a pillar firmly founded in the object 
or getting back to the idea of being a guardian, it says another simile is it should be regarded as like a doorkeeper because it guards the senses. And this is a very practical description of mindfulness. Why is it useful in the first place? It's because of how pure and clear it keeps the mind. Because of how how powerful it is, how useful it is, how how beneficial it is to the mind. <clears throat> it's an answer to so many of life's problems, in fact. As the situations we get into are mostly manifested as problems by our incapacity to confront them mindfully. We find that when we do have the capacity to face things mindfully, that, that many, many of them cease to be anything resembling a problem in the first place. Our perspective changes, our perspective is simplified. We let go of the complications. So those are just some basic ideas of mindfulness. Some of you have, I'm sure, heard me say these things before. But it's a very technical explanation, and it's useful to be that technical. It's very accurate, because we know we're following the ancient texts. And it's very insightful. Some of these things aren't things you often hear. It's useful to give some clarity as to what we mean by mindfulness. So that's all then for today for that. And now we'll move on to questions. Okay, let's begin. Should one try to note only around once per second? I find at times that noting arises automatically and quite quickly too. If I tried to slow it down, then I wouldn't be noting in the present moment. So that happens, you should note the, the, the awareness that that's happening. Especially if it's happening automatically, you would say something like knowing, knowing, and you would still note about once per second. Try not to jump from object to object, that's what I assume you're talking about. Like if you're noting pain, you should only note pain pain, pain once a second, right? But you don't go noting pain, seeing, hearing, smelling. Uh, don't jump from one to another. Try and note something once it's gone, then just go back to the body. How can I attain mindfulness with Kasina meditation? Mindfulness this te question is going to require a fairly technical answer because remember how words are um, problematic and confusing. You 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 can put words together in a sentence like this, in a question like this, and the only way to really explain and provide an answer is to, in detail, distinguish between different usages of words. Mindfulness is the word here, right? The only word that we have to worry about here is mindfulness because it's it it, it it means different things. So mindfulness exists in all wholesome mind states. So anytime you practice any type of useful, beneficial meditation, there's going to be what we call sati. 
but there is not sati there's not the sati of the satipatthana sutta there's not actual um, mindfulness of reality kasina meditation is a samatha meditation a kasina is a conceptual object it's something you form in your mind uh, for those of you who don't know what a kasina is it, kasina i think literally means something like totality and it's called that because you you turn your universe your whole of existence into this one thing like a color you start with a disc and eventually seeing this this circle of 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 the color eventually you expand it into all of your awareness until it's just all you understand is that and that has nothing to do with reality right obviously so you can't attain what i've been talking about as mindfulness so so the simple answer would be you can't but i don't want to be misleading because mindfulness is not just confined to the type of mindfulness i talk about mostly in in my videos or which i just went through you know in that in that explanation of mindfulness However, every time you focus on the white disc and say white, white, you're doing the same thing. The only difference is it has nothing to do with reality. So mindfulness of reality can't come about. But mindfulness of white, absolutely. That's why saying white, white works so well, because it gives rise to very strong mindfulness. So so I, I, actually, I guess the, the simpler answer would be to say, if you say to yourself white, white, that will give rise to mindfulness. But I don't want to say that because of being misleading for people to think that that's somehow equivalent to what we do when we say rising, falling, for example. You see, the difference, the only difference, and it's an essential difference, is, the, is not the technique, it's the object. These days I am losing motivation for almost everything. Doing a little amount of work seems to be a heavy burden. I am trying to work on that, but could you give me some tips? Well, motivation, I think, is misleading. I don't think it's always necessary. And 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 misleading because it's just a word, and it's often not which I, what's actually happening. Or it's not the essential part of what's happening. Motivation comes about because of many things, good, wholesome things and unwholesome things. Right. We're motivated to steal because we're greedy, for example. We're motivated to kill someone because we're angry. So motivation is not always a good thing, you see. But motivation to do work, well, why isn't there motivation is much more important than the fact that there isn't. Looking at looking at what's what's causing the lack of motivation. And it's probably something like aversion to the work. You talk about a heavy burden, and that's kind of hinting at, at a perception, a negative perception, a disliking of it, and you should note that. You really should note the hindrances, that's usually the problem. There's often desire to be doing other things as well. Look at the hindrances. Most of our problems in life relate to things about the hindrances. That's why they're such an essential part of mindfulness. When you're mindful, going back to what I was saying earlier you, you purify your mind of all of those reactions this is why it makes work much easier 
because then the thing that you're doing is just the thing that you're doing. There's no reaction, no judgment. I feel my mind is like waves, which gets higher than lower in nature. How does one balance the mind in a practical method? It's probably even a little more complicated than just waves, right? The mind is, I guess the water analogy is a good one because the mind is like, like an ocean, waves but whirlpools and currents and all sorts of complicated things and in the end it's just water but it's not just calm water so that's important because it gives you an answer as to why it's happening it's not just going up and down up and down it's complicated and so meditation practice is just one of the many currents in the ocean you apply this acti this this in inclination and it affects the mind but it has to contend with all the many other factors past habits and external factors i mean i don't have an answer for you beyond just trying to be more mindful but a part of that is the reassurance that it does work. It just doesn't work in a linear fashion, not because the mind is, is doomed to go up and down and up and down, but because the mind is complicated and there's many other factors involved. If you've been unmindful for many, many years, going to take time to change your habits and then we have to contend with past life habits as well we've got a lot of work to do for the most part and and including uh, allowing for some of our imperfections you know not not allowing actual unwholesomeness but many of the qualities that many of our qualities of our mind are, are inevitable like forgetting things thinking about things at inopportune moments, not being able to focus, uh, and then having many physical imperfections that affect the mind as well. As a lay person, I'm having a hard time balancing my practice of seeing experience clearly with the feeling that I owe all beings to serve them. Any advice? I'm trying to think about this idea that you feel that you owe all beings to serve them, where that comes from. It sounds like a, some schools of Buddhism. It's certainly not something I would recommend or point out as part of the Buddhist teaching. 
I guess I would say outright that you, I don't think that's an accurate, I don't think that's a proper thing to feel. I don't think it's a feeling that you should encourage. Why would you think you owe all beings to serve them? Man, you must have done they must have done something really good for you for you to owe them for you to owe all beings. You've been busy. Um so I think I would nuance that at, at the very least and maybe maybe adjust it. I think it's probably inaccurate to say that you owe all beings to serve them because that burden isn't there's no way to ever um, ever pay off that 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 debt beings are infinite you'll never you'll never win with that one so rather than say i owe all beings you can consider that to be and and it's a much more wholesome and and uh sanity protecting thing to to say that i do well to or it is proper to help other beings serve i think is also the wrong word we don't we don't any of us we shouldn't we shouldn't any of us serve another being i think I, I guess okay. Let's make some exceptions, like your parents, perhaps, your teacher, perhaps. I mean, I say that I'm thinking of in a monastic setting. It's a very good example. Monks will serve their teacher, and that's just. I mean, that's that's nothing to do with the deep dhamma. It's just a practical, kind of worldly thing. In monasteries, you you want harmony and you want a good. A good setup. It's a good setup to have students serving their teacher, like bringing the teacher water, bringing their teacher uh, tooth a tooth stick, and that sort of thing. You know, uh, sweeping out the teacher's uh, room. It's a very good thing for a student to do. They can make themselves feel grateful and helpful, and it helps the teacher because you know, the teacher doesn't have to do and do those things and and distract themselves from their ability to teach and so on. I mean, no, just in general, it's the proper thing to do, that example. And of course, with, with parents, to be more clear for those of you who aren't monks, sweeping out each other's rooms, sweeping for your parents, uh, cleaning up for your parents, helping your parents, doing whatever you can to help around the house when you're kids. And when your parents get old, serving them, that sort of thing. But those are fairly specific examples. I don't think there's much other reason to serve and i don't think it's proper to say you should serve in any in in many other contexts certainly slavery is in and servant being a servant is not accurate now if you're if you're a waiter or a waitress in a bar in a restaurant let's not say bar sorry in a restaurant um then that's another usage of the word but again obviously that's not what you're talking about but but by extension any kind of job where you have to quote unquote serve you're not actually serving and that's not what you're talking about so help others help is a much more a much better word and it's not that we owe our help we owe other people our help it's that helping others is the right thing to do 
when it's needed and when it's appropriate. And and so more like saying, there are times when helping other people is the right thing to do. And when it's the right thing to do, to do it. Doing it is, of course, appropriate. But that's just leads us to say doing the right thing is the right thing to do. And doing the right thing is... is much more important than, than any specific idea of quote-unquote helping someone. This is why the Buddha said when you help others, you help yourself. When you help yourself, you help others. It's really the same thing because it's actually not necessary to be so specific. Doing the right thing is the right thing to do. And so, so of course, the real question is how do you know what is the right thing to do? And that's really where mindfulness shines because it helps create the clarity and the presence that lets you see an experience in a situation clearly. So there's no balance involved here. Seeing experience clearly is what allows you to do the right thing, which sometimes will be helping others, but sometimes it will not be helping others. And you'll only see that when you see things clearly, right? Because by definition, seeing it clearly means knowing the right thing to do. That's a it's bound up in that definition of seeing clearly. Otherwise, it wouldn't be clearly if, if it was wrong. Whenever I am mindful of my breath, noting rising and falling, I keep controlling my breath. Any advice on how I can fix this? So you're asking, how can I control myself not to control myself? See this question, I get this question a lot and you have to catch this one. How can I force myself to let go? Is it's the same same kind of idea. How can I fix my fi how can I fix trying to fix things? I keep trying to fix things. How can I fix th that? That's where the problem lies. So what's actually happening? It's not you that's trying to f control because you is just conceptual i mean that having that kind of a concept isn't helpful it's more practical it's the, the practical solution is to focus on the experience of controlling and there's going to be tension involved there's going to be frustration perhaps but your desire to fix is just the same habit one thing to fix your controlling is just more of this controlling habit so the answer, and this is a big part of mindfulness, is to see what you're doing wrong until the mind stops doing it because it sees how wrong it is. And and it's not just sees once, you know. The point, the point being here that it requires rep repetition. It requires ad nauseum. It requires going until you get nauseous, well, you get disgusted. When the mind gets disgusted with itself, when the mind gets fed up and has had enough and bored and just disenchanted, that's when change comes about, not because you want it to stop, not because you fixed it somehow. There's no fix. It's only the letting go. And the letting go comes from seeing clearly. To 
overcome lust, you suggest to recognize seeing, pleasure, and liking when they arise. Could you clarify the difference between pleasure and liking, the vedana and the hindrance? Well, if you note to yourself happy or pleasure, you'll be able to see the difference because when you're doing that, there's no liking of it. Liking is not the vedana. Liking is the mental grasping for it, reaching for it. It's not so important that you be able to distinguish this is this, this is that. If it feels like you're liking something, just say liking, don't worry about it. You'll, you, you, part of the problem comes because it disappears so quickly that you're like, was it even there or was that really liking? I'm not sure because I don't see it anymore. But as soon as you say liking, it's already gone. You're already mindful and because mindfulness can't exist with things like that, it's already gone. So don't don't worry about it. Liking is the recognition after the fact. Just when you feel it feels like you're liking something, that's it's not um, uh, it's not complex. It's not complicated. It's just you like it. Then okay, say liking. That's all. When I'm aware of the breath, I cannot become aware of other things. Any advice? I don't understand the problem. Um, well, I, I guess this can be a problem when you're, or it can be an issue when you're fixed on just the breath. We don't use the breath as the object, technically. We use the stomach, probably, well, partially for that reason. The reason that you can get stuck on, on breath as a concept. So I'd recommend focusing on the stomach. When the stomach rises, say rising. When it falls, say falling. And if then you're not aware of anything else, well, that's fine, because those are still realities. On my job, I frequently deal with anxiety stemming from fear of failure. How can I resolve this fear? Just being mindful with it doesn't seem to help. Do I need to get deeper insight into my fears? So mindfulness doesn't help is usually a misunderstanding of what mindfulness is supposed to do. It's not supposed to stop you directly from getting afraid or anxious. It's supposed to help you see the anxiety clearly and see other things clearly, other things that would lead to anxiety. And the fact that you see the anxiety coming back again and again, quote-unquote, even though you're mindful, is an important part of the process. Because we have the idea that mindfulness, like any other tool, is supposed to fix things, is supposed to resolve things. You ask, how can I resolve this fear? That's not your job. That's not the solution to resolve the fear. The solution is to see the fear so clearly and repeatedly that the mind lets go of it. Again, back to the same idea. So try and understand that. Mindfulness is different than any other practice that you come across, any other tool, any other solution. It's not trying to fix things. And that's counterintuitive. You think, well, then what use is it if it's not? Because fixing things is a bad idea. Fixing things is a bad inclination. The, the intention to fix things is controlling, and it's partial, and it, it supports our aversion, it supports our... Um, mental illness, like think. Well, I mean, 
I use mental in this fairly loosely. I mean, any kind of mental, negative mental state or unwholesome, un, unskillful mental state. So the, the only solution, the, the proper solution is to focus on seeing more clearly than you already do the process of giving rise to anxiety and, and the act of being anxious as well. And if you focus just on that, it won't get rid of the anxiety. That's not what it's meant to do. It will help you see the anxiety more clearly. It's the seeing anxiety clearly that gets rid of the anxiety. It does it by itself. You don't need to do anything. So never focus on trying to get rid of it. That's not helpful. It's not skillful. It's unwholesome. It's caught up in aversion and so on. While I'm quite able to practice during the day in every situation, easy or difficult, at home I have big problems in just starting a session of formal meditation, like an unbearable monster. Any tips? Yeah, I mean, I, I have an answer, but, but just to acknowledge that it's hard. And I guess to not beat yourself up when you're not able to do it. To recognize that you can start anytime. And to not let the fact that you didn't meditate when you should have stop you from trying again, stop you from doing it now, because you can do it anytime. The fact that you're here right now is a good sign. Be encouraged by that. Right now, right while we're sitting here, right while we're sitting here, start doing formal meditation while you're listening to me. Note the sound of my voice hearing, and then you can go back to your stomach, rising, falling. But um, as to, to actually addressing this more directly, try and focus on the aversion to it, because that's also very important. We, we, we do turn things into monster, monsters, and even meditation can become a monster. But that's, that thing that has become a monster doesn't actually exist. There's no such thing as meditation, right? We just turn it into that. We get this concept of a formal meditation session that doesn't actually exist. So try and note that aversion, note the thinking about it, the worry about it, whatever it might be, and then just meditate. That can help. I have read your booklet and have watched your instructional videos and have been practicing accordingly, but I haven't taken an online course yet due to some difficulties. Is it safe to do this? mean safe to just continue yes it's absolutely safe the 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 problem and it's not a problem of safety the problem is that it's very basic and doing the at-home course uh, gives you more advanced techniques that's all that's all okay that that's one thing that's not all the second thing is it gives you contact with a teacher which of course is is a huge huge part of the practice so if there were any danger being with the teacher would make it safer. That is true. However, mindfulness is not a very dangerous practice. It's not likely to be something dangerous. It, it, it's, it's absolutely the kind of thing that, that makes your mind less dangerous, that makes you less likely to go crazy or something. And, and so the only thing I would say, let, let's put it this way, anything that you get obsessive about 
and and not just obsessive but uh, fixated on I guess obsessive is already good enough except obsessive means it as well but it doesn't mean just obsessively mindful it means you become crazy about it like you you just become ritualistic about it like like you can anything can drive you crazy like that mindfulness can do that because you stop being mindfulness it stops being about mindfulness and maybe it's just about repeating the words or maybe it's about walking back and forth and when when you fixate on those kinds of things you can drive yourself crazy because we're, of course we're dealing with the mind so mindfulness can't do that and isn't likely to do that but in the very extreme case where someone is a has mental issues let's say is is an obsessive sort of person they could practice improperly without a teacher and i i want to be i want to stress that i don't think hardly anyone has to worry about that um, but i will say it in order to just point out not to become obsessive or fixated on things on ideas on let's say results maybe someone becomes fixated on becoming enlightened becoming a buddha or that sort of thing that can drive you crazy when you become fixated mindfulness does fall in the category of mental development and it falls in the category of mental activity the best way to drive yourself crazy or the only really way is to do something with the mind so if the thing you're doing with the mind starts to cause problems yeah, you you can potentially fall into some trouble. So long to to, to shorten it. No, it's not. Or yes, it is safe. No, it's not dangerous, and you don't need to do the online course. The biggest reason: one, you get a teacher; two, uh, you get advanced techniques. And being with a teacher, really, the point is, being with a teacher allows for a safe application of more advanced techniques because. When you get into more intensive practice and more advanced techniques, I mean, there's nothing special about them. It's just more challenging. There's nothing really different. But when you start to push yourself further, without a teacher, they're, they're, that's where issues start to arise, where it's more likely that you're going to get obsessive or you're going to get fixated and lost, start practicing wrongly, for example, unmindfully. But mindfulness of all meditation types, of all mental developments, mindfulness is the, the safest because it's it's antithetical to any kind of craziness, any kind of obsession, right? It's just a matter of making sure that you're actually mindful. During walking meditation, when we find ourselves thinking or feeling, etc., should we bring our feet together and note thinking, feeling, and then continue anew with the stepping progression? It's advisable to do that if it's something that distracts you. So the thing with walking meditation is because of the nature of it, it's being you know, movement-oriented, you can ignore minor distractions if they're not really distracting you. I don't recommend that in sitting meditation, but during walking meditation, if it's just a stray thought, you can just ignore it. However, you can also stop and should stop if it's a real distraction. So yes, you'd put your feet together and note it then.
If strong desires are blocking me from mindfulness, what should I do? Well, that can't really happen. When you want something, you say wanting. I mean, yes, it, okay, it, it technically does block you, but only in the moment that it's occurring. Strong desires don't last longer than, than moments. So in between those moments, you can still note. Anytime you're aware that you have a strong desire is a moment where you, you have mindfulness and where you can cultivate it, where you can grow it. So using that, you, you say to yourself, wanting, wanting. And then, you okay, the desire comes again and it blocks you again, but there will be a moment again later. It's not really blocking you. You should apply, the, if you haven't read our booklet, I'd recommend reading the booklet and apply those techniques. And that should help you with mindfulness. Can I use noting to be mindful in between meditation sessions? Can noting help me from reaching for sweets to calm my strong emotions? Absolutely. Yes and yes. How can we develop more insights in life via practices? Many a time, it seems I could have done better simply by having a better insight of the situation. Well, this is a. There's a lot of ways I could answer this question, and I, one one simple thing I would say is life experience is something we we take for granted. This is why old people, in general, have a have have a have, have something worthy of respect. It's why I think respecting old people generally is generally a good thing, a right thing to do, because you respect the experience they have. Uh, we should respect people who are experienced in certain fields. Doctors we should respect to some extent because they're doctors, etc. Um, but that doesn't really have anything to do with, with meditation. So honestly, the most important supportive thing is m mindfulness. Mindfulness is going to help you have a, a clearer picture of what's going on. And it ties into the idea of life experience because it is possible to get old without having much wisdom. And you can be, a, of course, a corrupt old person. There's lots of old people who are terrible people still because they haven't used mindfulness to create positive, beneficial life experiences. So mindfulness uh, enhances the experience you get. That's really all it's doing, right? When I talk about seeing things so clearly that eventually the mind lets go, that's all it is. It's just life experience, but it's so accelerated and, and enhanced and strengthened because of the power of magnitude, stronger uh, clarity of mind. Could you explain how meditation helps to reduce mental attachment? I always feel depressed because of my attachment toward the people whom I love. Can we love someone without strong mental attachment? Well, love is a hard word. Um, it means different things, so it really depends what you mean by love. And And the one thing I'd point out about this question is it implies a premise that love is 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 good right 
you, you, you take it for granted that it's good to love someone which may sound shocking because you'd be like, of course it's good to love someone but it isn't necessarily depending on what you mean by love and you should never start I, I would suggest that, to you to consider that you should never start from a, a belief that something is right you should instead start with an open mind and try to see what is right what is beneficial love can be a terrible thing because it can be clingy it can it can be obsessive depending on how you mean it it's usually not how people see it but on the other hand most of what people think of as love is very much tied up with this obsession this attachment this clinging this need which of course leads to suffering when what you what you expect isn't satisfied so Getting back to the actual question of how meditation helps to reduce attachment. Meditation helps you see clearly. And try and stick with that. Don't focus on what it might reduce or what it might increase. Focus on the act of meditating. Try to see clearly. And and why? 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 Should I? Why do I say that? Why can you get away with not focusing on on results? Because once you see clearly, you know what to do, and what not to do. You know what's right and what's not right. Your mind knows what's wrong with attachment, and it understands what's really happening when we talk about love. And so it's able to see what parts of that thing that's happening are beneficial. What parts of those things that, what parts of that thing that's happening are harmful? And simply based on that clarity and that knowing, the mind changes by itself. You don't need, and it doesn't help to have any intention to change, any inclination to reduce, increase, etc. Seeing clearly really is enough. It is the answer. When you feel depressed, try and see that clearly without trying to change it. When you are attached, try and see that clearly. When you love someone, try and see that clearly. And just have an open mind about what might be right and wrong and don't fixate and say, this is what I have to cling to. Don't cling to anything. Let your mind figure out what's right and what's wrong by giving it the tools, giving it the opportunity to see clearly. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one more question in Tier 1. Do you have the extra time? Go for it. How do sensory pleasures affect mindfulness? Well, they harm it. They distract from it. They get in the way of it. I don't know how much deeper I should go. They, I guess, I guess I'd turn this on on its head and say, focus more on being mindful of sensory pleasures. And sorry, let's let's be clear that I'm thinking when you say sensory pleasures, you mean the desires, sensory desires, 
Right, so I may have gotten this wrong. You may only be referring to actual pleasure. Because pleasure isn't actually a problem. But desire is. And it often means the same thing, or it often is experienced as the same thing. So it's an important point that pleasure isn't actually a bad thing and it's not a problem. So I, again, turn this on its head and say, focus more on being mindful of the pleasure, mindful of the, the desire, mindful of the experience. That's all. Thank you, Bhante. That's it for today. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Ulu and Jim. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Good session. Wish you all the best. Sadhu. Sadhu.